1978, there was a Christmas, spe- a Star Wars Christmas special. It aired one time because everybody hated it. It never came back on again. It was never released on film. Now, I'm no genius, but I have to think that the first 20 minutes of the movie killed it, okay? Even for those that are just steeped in all things Star Wars. And I, I think part of the reason is because the first 20 minutes of the, of the movie are, are, they take place on Chewbacca's home planet with his family, okay? The problem was that Many of you know Chewbacca was a large, hairy Wookiee, or Wood, I don't know how you say it, but the guy didn't speak English. He didn't speak anything. He just grunted. So did his family. So for 20 minutes of the film to start with, all you have is grunting. Now again, that might be entertaining to some of you most diehard Star Wars fans, but that just, I, I don't get it, and most people didn't either. Therefore, it's never aired again. Now, here's the point of this. What am I trying to say? Clear communication matters. Clear communication matters. If you don't understand what's being said, then the television show, the movie, or the conversation isn't going to go anywhere. It's not going to have value. It's not going to be fun. It gets boring pretty quick. In a similar way, unintelligible language spoken in the church that nobody can understand has zero value to the body of Christ when gathered. Like some churches today, the Corinthian believers were placing a premium on the exercise of sign gifts, specifically one above all, and that was tongues. The same is true today. A lot of churches emphasize tongues above all other gifts. Now just what is tongues? On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, a miracle took place. The Holy Spirit fell on the people gathered. Foreigners who were in in Jerusalem each heard the disciples speaking in their own languages. The miracle was the fact that the gospel was being proclaimed in languages that the speakers themselves did not know. But God gifted them in the moment to be able to share the good news in a language that they can understand. There's been debate, is this a speaking gift or a hearing gift? I tend to think it's a speaking gift because of the way in which uh, the Apostle Paul talks about it elsewhere, specifically here in 1 Corinthians 14. But Either way, it is tongues, biblically speaking, I believe, are known languages. Not a private prayer language, not a heavenly language that only the Lord knows. But as Paul talks about them, as, as we see them in the New Testament, they were known languages. The, the word for interpretation or interpreter here is most used as somebody interpreting or bringing out the meaning of a known language. In in verse 10 of the passage that we're going to look at today, Paul talks about the issues of tongues and illustrates them in the context of known languages. Unknown to the speaker, but known to the hearer. But Paul's point here is that in worship services, if they're to have any benefit then tongues were going to either need to be severely limited or 
abstained from so that the worship services could have edification value to those present. If nobody understands what is being said, not even the hearer himself, then what value is it to the body? So as we look at 1 Corinthians 14, let me try to summarize the main idea of this text. What is spoken in the church as worship should be beneficial and edifying to the church at large. If what is said causes confusion and doesn't result in edification, then it shouldn't be done in the body of Christ. We must remember, as we have looked at in these previous chapters, spiritual gifts are given to the body of Christ, not for the edification of the individual, but to serve and edify the body of Christ. You are gifted by God to edify those sitting around you. I am gifted by God, Lord willing, to edify you this morning, not to edify myself. Tongues, when not understood and not interpreted, do not edify the body at large. And so let me give you four truths concerning the use and importance of prophecy in tongues. Number one, we should seek spiritual gifts, especially those that edify the body with truth. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. Page 960 in your pew Bible, if I haven't said that already, I apologize. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Verse 1 points us back to chapter 13, reminding us that spiritual gifts should be exercised in love for one another. Remember what Paul said back in 13. If we exercise spiritual gifts, any of them, without a spirit of love, we're just making noise and we're annoying. Right? We are clanging gongs. We are being ridiculous. We are having no value in the body of Christ, we are being a hindrance rather than a blessing. Paul reminds us here that we should seek spiritual gifts. We should love spiritual gifts. We should want them from the Lord so that we may bless the body and bless the community at large with them. But we must remember the purpose of them. It's to build up the body of Christ and for the salvation of the world. The Corinthians were not following these words. They were caught up in the impressive. They were caught up in the self-gratifying, showing off the kinds of things. When I get up and I do something that you've never seen before, all of a sudden the attention gets on me. Look at me. Look how much greater my gift is than yours. Mine is cooler. And so that began to be emphasized over and over and over again to where that gift took all precedent in the service and it wasn't benefiting anybody. 
In fact, it was distracting and confusing. They were more interested in the unintelligible, uninterpretive tones. They were prioritizing the impressive over the intelligible. And the problem was the impressive was not making a good impression. It was pushing people away. It was unloving to others in the body. It was confusing to some. Paul says prophecy should take precedent in the corporate gatherings because tongue builds up self. What prophecy builds up the body? Tons are not bad. It's a gift. They're a blessing from the Lord, but later Paul will put strict guidelines on their use because all gifts must build up the body. Uninterpreted tongues don't do that. Now, let me talk about prophecy just for a little bit, okay? New Testament prophecy can simply be defined as speaking God's word into a situation. Speaking God's word into a situation. Now, there's been debate back and forth. What exactly does this mean? Is this always spontaneous? Is this, is this uh, you know, on this side of the completed canon in the 21st century, does this look more like Bible teaching? What does this look like? I think you could put it into three categories, okay? But I, I, I say this with humility because, the, you know, there's some debate on this. The first is an aspect, listen, an aspect of preaching. Really on the application ends of the preaching ministry. Now, prophecy and teaching are not synonymous. In fact, Paul divides them in previous chapters. He talks about teaching, he talks about prophecy. If, if he divides them, they can't be exactly the same, okay? And so, to, because we get uncomfortable at prophecy, to just make it synonymous with teaching because that makes us, you know, that puts it in a little neater box for us that, you know, that we are more comfortable with, I don't think does the text justice. So it's not synonymous purely with teaching where I just uh, uh, bring forth the truth of God's word verse by verse like I'm doing right now. Whereas I think a form of prophecy or the form of uh, the prophecy gift can include God giving the speaker or the preacher spiritual insight and spiritual timing while preaching. This is described as proclaiming the word of God with power into your lives. Showing you in the moment how God's word might be best applied with wisdom into your life. Number two, wisdom, insight into an issue in the moment, spontaneously from the Lord where you don't have a chapter and verse for it. Maybe you have somebody in your life that no matter the situation, it seems like God has gifted them to be able to speak wisdom into your life. They may not have a chapter and verse where every word comes from, but it's in line with God's word. It's faithful to God's word. And it's spiritual wisdom insight that just hits and strikes the right tone for you in that moment. That can be a form of the gift of prophecy. Knowledge, we're going to see this down in, 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 in verse 25. Knowing about a situation, spontaneously knowing just what to say. Now, the last two of these we need to be careful with. 
The last two of these, they don't take on the weight of Scripture. When I stand up here and I say, this is what God's Word says, is different than me standing up here and say, this is what I think God might be leading me or you to do. You see the difference? In the moment, I feel as though I have the mind of God on an issue and I want to speak that wisdom into your life. But this is what I know without a shadow of a doubt comes from the Lord and comes from the Lord with 100% accuracy. So that's why in our church we give the greatest weight to what thus saith the Lord in His perfect word. We are always going to give the greatest weight to verse by verse teaching. Seeking for you to understand the knowable, valuable, perfect Word of God that you might know it, believe it, and apply it. And so, prophecy is valuable. I do believe that God can still use the gift in certain ways. And it is very valuable in the body of Christ. Application of His Word. Wisdom. Knowledge. Insight. But we recognize that that we tread on that water humbly. Furthermore, if we are going to prophesy and say we believe that this is a word from the Lord, it should be affirmed by the teachers, the elders, the guiders of God's flock to make sure that it is biblical, that it's accurate, that it doesn't go against God's word, but it is in line with God's word. Preachers, myself included, should be very careful getting up on Sunday mornings or in front of a Bible study or in front of a small group and speaking authoritatively with that which they think, with that which they feel is from the Lord and giving it the same weight which that which I know is from the Lord because it's in front of me in His Word. Does that make sense? So it can be effective. In fact, Paul says prophecy is greater than tongues because it is, it is knowable, intelligible, effective, powerful words from the Lord for His church. Especially in the first century when they did not have the written New Testament. They relied on God gifting the apostles and the teachers and the preachers in the moment to be able to spontaneously give them from the Lord that which they did not have in front of them. So there was a great need for this in the first century, and I do believe that God God can use it in certain forms today. And so without getting bogged down in all the nuances, here's the point. Prophecy still focuses on that which is knowable, intelligible, understandable, that you may know it, hear it, believe it, and apply it. Uninterpreted tongues don't do that. And so therefore, we focus on that which is knowable and intelligible. Now let's read verses 6 through 12. Paul uses some simple illustrations here. Now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation? Or knowledge, or prophecy, or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, will you, how will you be ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with tongues you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. 
There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in the building up of the church. Musical instruments, a bugle, a call to battle, a daily conversation. All of these are instances where communication must be clear. If a musical instrument does not give a clear, distinct sound, no one will recognize it. Going back to elementary music. Music to be music has to have three things. Rhythm, harmony, and melody. These must be understood. These must be present in order for music to be effective music. If the bugler is not sure whether he's calling retreat or charge, he's not being very helpful in the battlefield. Communication must be knowable, understandable, clear. This is also true in daily conversation, as Paul talks about. I remember when I first got to seminary. You know, many of you, um, I've told before that I actually met my wife the first day I got to seminary, right? And my wife had a roommate. Now, I was just enamored with my wife, so I spent as much time as possible. I still am enamored with her, okay? Spent as much time with her as possible. Now, my wife's from Florida. She has a little bit of a southern accent, but it's pretty understandable. But she had a roommate from, from like the backwoods of South Carolina. Wonderful, wonderful girl. But remember, I'm from New Jersey. And so the first few times I would hang out with my wife and her roommate was present. And this sweet girl would, would try to talk to me and befriend me. And I would just nod and smile. You know why? I didn't have a clue what in the heck she was saying. She was smiling. I mean, she was passionately talking to me, and I'm just nodding up and down because none of it makes a lick of sense. Words had certain vowels and syllables that I hadn't heard before. The draw was so thick, it was unintelligible. And guess what? For the first few months while I was adjusting to that Southern culture, communication with her was not effective. Whether we're talking music, we're talking on the battlefield, or we're talking in everyday conversation communication and its clarity matters. No matter how you split it, if it's not clear, it doesn't do any good. That's what Paul is saying here. We should value prophecy, teaching, that which is clear, understandable, over that which is unintelligible. Now, we have to be careful, especially for us that tend to value teaching and the intelligible and those things over the emotional that some other churches put, put their uh, stock in. We don't want to swing the pendulum the opposite way because here's what happens. We act as though the Spirit's not present. Since we value the verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word and we believe that worship should be done in a certain way that is valuable to all and, and we should not place a premium on, on that which is driven by emotion what we end up doing is we swing the opposite way. We stand here, we sing with blank looks on our faces. We hesitate to lift our hands. Amens are banned. What does Scripture tell us that our worship should be comprised of? Both what? Spirit and truth. 
A lot of times we're good on the truth. We throw the spirit out the window. Paul, what does Paul say? What does Paul say in verse 12? So with yourself, since you eagerly, since you are eager for manifestations of the spirit. He doesn't condemn that. And we shouldn't either. We should eagerly desire manifestations of the Spirit. Our worship should not be stoic and boring. It should be Spirit-filled. Our preaching, our prayer, our worship. We should not fear manifestations of the Spirit. All Paul does here is he tries to, do, to direct them in, in, in the right direction. Guys, your desire here is good. Let me sort of just nudge you in the right direction. Let us not value one over the other. Let us balance both. You know, I think it would be okay if we brought a little more excitement on the Sunday morning. Not that we're all up here speaking gibberish and swinging the pendulum the opposite way. But let us act as though the Spirit of God is here and real. And that He has been sent by Jesus to fill our hearts, to change our lives. There is no help to people, though, unless revelation is given. When we speak, it's important that we are revealing truth. Those who claim to be speaking in tongues and you have no idea what they are saying in worship, they're not helping anyone. In fact, Paul says they're simply speaking to the air. We should not condemn the gift of tongues. I've talked about this before. While in practice, I tend to be closer to the, to the cessation of certain gifts, I do not believe that the Bible gives clear evidence that any gift other than apostleship has completely ceased. So we should not condemn the gift of tongues and act as though it's abhorrent. Could God use it in some context today for His glory? I believe in some context, and I'll probably get to this more next week, that he could. But friends, our focus should be clear. In the church, understandable, life-changing truth from the Lord so that you and me and others might be instructed and changed should be our focus. So we should eagerly desire spiritual gifts but let our focus be not on the impressive, but the effective. Number two, tongues have communal value only when interpreted. I need to speed up a little bit here. Tongues have communal value only when interpreted. I know I'm losing some of you in the weeds here, but I've got to be faithful to the text, okay? So I'm going to try not to lose you, but stick with me here. because Some of this, I do believe, will be highly valuable to you. Let me read verses 13 through 18. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit. I mean, I, I, yeah, I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praises with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit... How can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? 
for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I'd rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words with a tongue. Actually, I, I read a verse too many there. In this section, Paul encourages the Corinthian Christians that true biblical gift of tongues may be exercised for the benefit of the entire congregation, but only when interpreted. But even then, prophecy is preferable. Truth, clear truth is preferable. Paul reminds the Corinthians that it's better to be a blessing to the whole church than to experience some sort of personal excitement. Again, we, we tend to swing the pendulum one way. We have to be careful about the other way as well. That we value the emotional to the point of where my personal emotional excitement is my greatest objective when worshiping. That is not biblical in any way. Worship is not about your personal experience. It is about the body at large. It is not about personal emotion and excitement. Should we be excited? Yes, but we should be knowingly engaged in worshiping the Lord together for who He is and what He has done. In verses 13 through 15, he tells the individual who is speaking in tongues to pray for the power to interpret so that communication may be intelligible even to him. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Again, if the believer speaks in a tongue, the inner person might be stirred. But even he is not fully edified because he doesn't know what the heck he's saying. How can he then edify others? We should also pray that we can engage the mind. It is better to worship in spirit and in truth. It's better to worship emotionally and mentally. Let us not worship simply with part of who we are. It's better to worship with the entirety of ourselves. Body, mind, and spirit. Then he applies this same principle to other believers in the church. And he basically says tongues without interpretation excludes people. That's not what worship is about. Worship includes everyone. What we are engaging in this morning is not a hundred people individually worshiping the Lord. What we are engaging in this morning is the communal, corporate worship of the Lord. You don't need this to worship the Lord individually. You can do that in your living room. What brings greater value is the like-minded body of Christ coming together for the greater good of one another. That's what we are engaging in this morning. And so therefore, gifts that benefit the entirety of the body should be sought after and valued above all else. As I preach this morning, I hope some of you in your hearts and in your minds are saying amen. It is true. I agree. But how, what is the only reason that you can say that in your hearts and your minds? Because you understand what I'm saying. And hopefully you believe it to be true. 
But if I'm up here this morning speaking in Latin, how can you say amen? You don't know what I'm saying. So therefore, you cannot participate in the worship of Christ with me this morning. That divides the body of Christ. It doesn't edify. What is said in the body of Christ only has value if it is intelligible. Tongues only have value when accurately interpreted. Prophecy and teaching should be valued above all else because it is the the clear, knowable, understandable proclamation of God's Word so that all of us can participate together, believe it, know it, apply it, and say amen together. Number three, seeking tongues is not a sign of spiritual maturity. Seeking gifts that serve and build up others is. Verses 19 and 20, let me read those for you. Nevertheless, in church, I'd rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Verse 20, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be Mature. 10,000 is the highest number in Greek. Often meant to, to describe like infinity. To portray, hey, this is like the biggest number. It, it's like unknowable. It's, it's like more than what you can even think. Paul says, I'd rather speak five words with my mind that I understand and you can understand. Like Jesus bore your sin, Amen than an infinity amount of words in a tongue. In other words, Paul is saying, yeah, I'm the most gifted of all of you. I I speak in tongues more than all of you. I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, but look how I'm using my gifts. I'm using them to serve, to bless, to instruct, to build up. He's essentially saying a preoccupation with tongues, without concern for their place and purpose. Or the effect on oneself or on others is childish. You feeling as though you have to use your gift and shove it down everybody else's throats, regardless of the context, because it shows you off, is childish. It's immature. Paul says we're to be innocent or childlike when it comes to evil or sin. But we should be mature in our worship and in our use of spiritual gifts together. Maturity says, how can I use the way in which God has gifted me in the most spiritually beneficial way for all those around me? It doesn't say, hey, how can I advance my standing in the church? How can I get the pastor to see me and elevate me to a position? How can I get um, others to think that I'm the cat's meow in the body of Christ? That is not the purpose of spiritual gifts. And to think that way doesn't show spiritual maturity. It shows spiritual immaturity. It shows, man, we got a lot of work to do with your understanding of what the body of Christ, what church, and what spiritual gifts are all about. Some of the Corinthians believers had come to believe that speaking in tongues was evidence of spiritual 
maturity. This is not uncommon today. Some forms of Pentecostalism teach that the mark of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the ability to speak in tongues. Now listen, many of you know, I tread very, very lightly and graciously to any other denomination. But let me call this out for what it is. That is blatant, false teaching. The baptism of the Holy Spirit happens at the moment of salvation in which the Holy Spirit regenerates your person and your being, makes you new, and then takes up residency in your heart, making you more and more into the image of Christ until He returns. Paul goes out of his way over and over and over again to show that God gifts individuals in different ways and all are valuable and important. He goes out of his way here to reign in tongues, not to celebrate them and elevate them above all else. This is a misunderstanding. And by those that teach and preach the Word of God, it is a blatant, false teaching. Twice he uses the word thinking in verse 20. That word means the faculty of the wise. Thoughtful, rational investigation. Mature faith will never stress the non-cognitive and non-rational. I am not saying that, that the non-cognitive emotion has no place. But the cognitive and rational must be central to the life of the church. We must be able to stand on what we know is true. We must be under, able to stand firmly on the knowable truth of God rather than emotional experience and its static utterance. Number four, tongues are a sign, but prophecy changes hearts. Tongues are a sign, but prophecy changes hearts. Let me read verses 21 through 25, and I promise... I'm not that far off from the end, okay? In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for the unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he worships God and declares, that God is really among you. See, tongues did have a purpose. I believe they can even have a purpose today. They had a message, but it was not for the believer in the church service. That was not God's design for tongues. It's never been His design for tongues. It was as a sign to unbelievers, specifically the unbelieving Jew. And they were... At, they, they were not a positive sign, but a sign of judgment. Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 through 12. 
It's a reference to the invading Assyrian army whose barbaric language the Jews would not understand. The presence of this new tongue was affirmation of God's judgment on his people because of their rejection of him. He had spoken to them through his messengers in their own tongue, and the nation would not repent. And now the confusing tongue was a sign of judgment. As a nation, the the Jews were always seeking a sign. At the day of Pentecost, they got one. The apostles spoke in tongues, and it was a sign to unbelieving Jews who were there celebrating the feast. The miracle of tongues aroused interest and pointed to their rejection of the gospel. But it did not fully convict their hearts. It took Peter's preaching in Aramaic, which all people there would likely understand, to bring them to a place of conviction and conversion. See, the principle of edification encourages us to major on the Word of God so that the church will be strengthened and grow. The principle of understanding reminds us that we must share That what we share must be understood if it is to be any good. So while we're not condemning, while Paul was not condemning the use of tongues in corporate gatherings, here's what he's saying. You're putting such a premium on a gift that really wasn't designed to be used in the corporate worship context to begin with. It was designed to be used as as a sign specifically to unbelieving Jews, but fully to unbelievers in general. And unless you also put a premium on the gift of interpretation, you'll run the risk of confusing, of not being loving to your brothers and sisters in Christ as you're excluding them from worship. And you're going to scare the bejeepers out of people that come in for the first time. Your average unbeliever that doesn't come from a church context might be walking into our place for the first time. And what they are greeted with is a bunch of wackos screaming at the top of their lungs, falling on the floor, and saying things that nobody understands and everybody acts like this is cool. What do you think is going to happen to your average person that walks in and sees that? They're going to turn around, walk right out the door, tell all their friends, you don't want to go there. And what we're doing by doing that is we are bringing condemnation on them. Now, how are we doing that? Because of our selfishness and our desire for personal experience, We have unlovingly and unknowingly turned others off to Jesus. And chances are the next time they are confronted with the gospel of Jesus, they will associate it with people that didn't care enough about them to do a church service in a way that was understandable. But you see, prophecy, God speaking truth through his people and making his word come alive is transformative in the body. A place where God is active and speaking 
and his power is evident and his truth is taking hold, that is a place that brings transformation. That is a place that God celebrates and uses where God is alive and working in the church and people cannot deny the power and the insight and the answers to prayer. In a skeptical culture, this has a power and persuasion that our arguments cannot. Now, I'll speak more on the gifts of tongues next week, okay? This is, a, this is like a two-part series. I cannot exhaust the issue today, but as I close, let me just encourage you with this. The Corinthian church was placing a premium on the cool and the flashy. They wanted the gifts that made them look good and feel more spiritual instead of gifts that should, they, they should have been pursuing gifts that would help others grow in the faith. At the end of chapter 12, Paul told us to desire the greater gifts. I don't believe that he's so much telling them to crave specific gifts, but he's telling them to yearn together for those gifts which maximize the building up of my brother or sister in Christ. They got off track. Friends, let me encourage us not to get off track here today. And in every other week from now on, let us crave together a worship that is meaningful and builds up all. Let us pray for and desire those gifts that better the person sitting next to me. Let us desire together to know the truth of God, not just to think that we have a feeling that might be from God. Let us fall in love with a knowable, understandable God who speaks to us through His Word. Let us fall in love together as a church that truly loves one another. A body collective that is about more than just ourselves. Let us become a people that together worship in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word this morning. I pray that you would bless it now, that you would make it understandable and knowable in our hearts where I may have erred or not have been understandable. Lord, I pray that you would right those wrongs today, that your truth would be clear to us, that we may hear it, understand it, believe it, and be changed by it. Bless us now, in Jesus' name, amen.